This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Can we reshape Earth's atmosphere? Can we go back to the greenhouse levels found before the Industrial Revolution? Astrophysicist and engineer Dr. Peter Fiakowski says yes. In his new book, Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. But the tools are still questionable. Pay attention to learn from one of the most informed minds in climate restoration. But stay tuned for my analysis of the pitfalls and unknowns of trying to engineer the atmosphere. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex. Here we go. Radio EcoShock. Are we doomed to climate hell? It often looks that way. So I was doubtful about a new book claiming humans could go back to a safe atmosphere. Author Peter Fiakowski knows climate despair, but he refuses to let us give up. His new book is Climate Restoration, the Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. Dr. Fiakowski trained at the famous Massachusetts Institute of Technology as both a physicist and engineer. He has worked with NASA and artificial intelligence holds 27 patents, and advises clean tech companies. In 2017, Peter launched and led the Foundation for Climate Restoration. Now his new book tells us all how to do it. From Los Altos, California, Peter Fiakowski, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Alex, thank you so very much. It's a privilege to talk with you in the audience. Well, despite the Paris Agreement and all sorts of green promises, the fossil fuel industry is booming. People think it's patriotic. It should. Greenhouse gas emissions set new records every year, and we have terrible climate-driven events. Uh, They're so common. Isn't climate despair the most rational assessment, Peter? Climate despair is the rational assessment. And what my book points out is there's predictable, uh, which is despair, absolutely, and then there's what we're going to do. And so we could take the car and turn the steering wheel to where we want to go. And well, I grew up on the East Coast, and when I learned to drive, my doctor instructing said, said, listen, it's not snowing now, but when it snows and you get into a skid, and don't look at the tree you want to avoid. Don't look there. Look down the road where you want to go. And in climate, we've been looking at the tree, at the two degrees that we don't want to do, and we've been headed straight there because the way the brain works is what you pay attention to is what you get. And so the book is about climate restoration because what we really want is to leave future generations the climate that our, our species with our, and our civilization grew up with. And so what, paying attention to it means that we actually can get there. And I think in the next few minutes, we'll talk about how. We will indeed. But maybe climate despair is the biggest barrier to saving ourselves. It's almost like a kind of denial, even within the climate-aware community. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I guess it's a lesson that sort of leadership training often teaches, which is focus on what you really want. Figure out who it's for and what they want. And that, for me, in the climate restoration field, the breakthrough was I, I knew I didn't want climate disaster. And at the second or third climate conference I went to in, in uh, Marrakech, a bishop invited me to dinner. And it was a beautiful dinner, lots of wine, thank God. And it took two glasses of wine before I realized that climate is not a science problem. Science is going to be fascinated by our changes, and it is. 
climate is a problem for humanity. And I realized, oh, you know, the customer is, is humanity. And it took me almost no time to ask, well, what does humanity want? And as I said earlier, humanity wants to get uh, wants of the climate that we were designed for, that the agriculture develops inside it for the first time in the history of our planet. It was a, a major insight because I could see it, that it, the reframe climate, rather than being for business, you know, in Congress, a lot of the in, work on climate is how do you create jobs, how do you make it profitable businesses, and that's a good thing, but that doesn't give you restoration. Uh, restoration is about future generations, and so we have to uh, refocus on identifying and being concerned about the concerns of future generations, which is a little difficult, but not too difficult. So let's dare to dream that humans can repair the damage we have done, starting with the atmosphere. What is the target in general, Peter? Where do we need to go? Well, uh, CO2 levels in the atmosphere uh, has been about 280 parts per million since the last ice age, since the end of the last ice age, so about 10,000 years. And that's where we want to get back. Um, scientifically, uh, there's not much you can say about it, but just as a, as a parent, you say, let's go back to the safe harbor. We use the term safe harbor in, in stormy seas. The captain will look at his map and find the closest safe harbor and make a beeline to get there as quickly as possible. And that's what we want to do with the climate. So 280 is our safe harbor because we know we've been there and been safe. Well, Dr. James Hansen and then 350.org suggest 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide is the upper mark for a safe climate, and we're now passing 420 parts per million uh, and climbing ever faster. Some people think 350 is unrealistic, but now you say we need to go even lower to 280. That makes it even harder. Why set the target so low? Well, uh it's sort of like, <laughs> I was talking to someone today, and I, it's sort of like you can think that you want to have a date and um, uh, you have a great evening, or you can actually tell someone, listen, I want to, pardon my French, I want to get laid tonight. And as you tell them, you're likely to have it happen. In the same way, we re- you know, once you say we really want a safe harbor climate, then you can find a way to do it. Um, it's the difference between, you know, I might think I want to have lunch with you tomorrow, but once I say, let's have lunch tomorrow at noon, halfway between wherever you are and I am, if we say it, then we actually buy the tickets and get there. And so asking for it is how we find the way to get there. But it's the difficult distinction for people. It's easy once you, once you get it, but in science, it's all about predicting. So as a physicist, I predict you know, what's going to happen. I was an astrophysicist originally, so predicting what was going to happen in distant galaxies, but also in a uh, wide range of electronics and so on. You predict what's going to happen. In engineering, you actually cause what you want to happen, which is very different than predicting. So what we want to do is sh- uh, shift the idea of climate from simply predicting to causing, and so going from science to engineering. Frankly, I presumed your book would duck the population problem. So many public figures do, but instead you devote a chapter to it. 
Can we set a goal, a real number, for the long-term survival of humans on this planet, or what What do you come up with? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's a very optimistic journey I've been on, because I started out in 1975 learning about global warming and thinking we have to get CO2 out of the air. And then in my work in the last five years, we, we had to ability to get all the CO2 out. We can duplicate what nature does. And once I realized that we could do it and the companies that are working on it were doing it, I realized, oh, you know, it's not going to make any difference if we have a population that's 10 times the sustainable level that we had during the last 10,000 years while we developed agriculture. And I was in despair for a while. So I did the math, and as a physicist, I'm qualified to do some do nice math. And I did the math, and I said, well, using the safe harbor model, what human population we know is sustainable for thousands of years? And the, the last population we had that was sustained for thousands of years was about 2 billion. It's a bit more complicated, but I'll call it 2 billion for the moment. Uh, if you look it up, it's about 1 billion, but you can interpret it as 2 and then the question is, okay, good. If we wanted to get the population back to 2 billion, uh, how would we do it? Well, you, you know, at the first thing we all think, I think we all had this horrible thought. Well, we could have a nuclear war. That might, but of course, it's very unlikely to get it from 8 billion to 2 billion. It'll go from 8 billion to 7 billion or 8 billion to 0 billion. And we don't, that's not good. That's no good. Well, how about a disease? It's the same problem. It's unlikely to get you where you want to go. And that leaves uh, having small families for a certain number of years. And, I, and so then I said, great, let's do the math. What's up family for how many years? And so as an engineer, I said, well, I like round numbers. You know, just like John Kennedy said, we're going to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Why? Because it's a round number. So I picked the end of the century. And so let's get to the population safe harbor by the end of, end of the century. Well, how do we do that? It turns out that uh, if we bring the, our, our birth rate down, it's now about 2.3, um, down from, it was 5.3 in 1960, and if we bring it down to, um, it's went from 5.3 to 4.3, 3.3, it's now 2.3. Uh, if we go one more to 1.3, what it is in, in Italy, for example, um, then by the end of the century, our planet would be back at a safe harbor population, nice and stable. And it's like, we could do that. You know, we know how to, we've proven that we can take whole nations and give them the security they need and the confidence they need to have small families. So it's actually doable. Do you think we need to give up some fossil-powered benefits like flying around for holidays, at least until sustainable solutions are found? And, and are we ready to tell people, Saving the climate will require sacrifices. Uh, won't they just turn away then? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I'm a, a firm believer in play the card you're dealt. So to turn the card over, uh, see what, what the card really is, and then play it. And I don't think they're going to give up flying. And not only that, even if they did, how much difference would it make? And so that's sort of the and the bad news is we can dream that we could pressure people into stop flying 
but it, the, the likelihood of that succeeding is, is low enough, you know, it's certainly less than 50%, that I'm not going to spend my time there. In contrast, it turns out uh, one of the companies that I've uh, been involved in a little bit uh, converts waste to jet fuel. And it turns out that municipal waste from cities, um, you know, the garbage trucks that go down your street, they produce uh, enough material that using technology was, that was developed in World War II, it's been refined, but it was developed then, it'll produce enough jet fuel from our municipal waste to run all of our airlines. And so uh, we can, uh, for a few more decades, run our air- airplanes off of the energy coming out of our city waste. And so uh, it's not, we don't need to despair. And another thing I discuss briefly in the book is you know, that many of uh, the listeners are familiar with, of course, nuclear power, and then people are talking about fusion power. There are a few of us working on uh, cold fusion, which was uh, said to be debunked by the physics field uh, back in the 89, 90 when it came out. But uh, if you look at it, it's, we're actually, you know, we've demonstrated it and testing it, and so it looks like that will probably uh, come out in the next year or two. Hopefully there'll be some, some big news reports about that or maybe we'll keep it more into quiet. My point there is we've got everything we need to restore the climate, to get CO2 back to pre-industrial, to get methane back to pre-industrial, to get our population back to pre-industrial, but keep our, our technological lives. And I invite you and your listeners to imagine you know, towards the end of this century, where you know, the population is much lower, and so uh, you know, the traffic jams are, are less, the, the national parks uh, you know, are free and lush because they're not being encroached by people, by more and more billions. And just about imagine that future where the number of people in the country is low enough that everyone gets a good education. Everyone gets really good nutrition. You know, however we guarantee it, we guarantee it, whether it be government or faith-based or philanthropic or just everyone prosperous, whatever your favorite modality is. If you imagine it, it starts happening. If you get very specific, you're making, you know, I'm asking people to get very specific that we want our future generations to live in a healthy planet and uh, to make sure that kids are uh, raised in a very healthy fashion so that they're well-adjusted. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Peter Fiakowski. We are talking about his new book, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. It is time to get to the best tools to save ourselves. Your book, Climate Restoration, investigates the big four solutions. Would you like to take some time to introduce us to them? Sure, sure. The first one is how do we get rid of a trillion tons of CO2? And the answer is the best thing to do what nature does. Uh, you're, You're probably familiar with the concept of ice ages. When the planet goes into an ice age, CO2 levels drop by the same amount that we've risen the CO2 levels in the last 100 years, which is about 130 parts per million. And so then you might ask, what does nature do with that carbon so that the planet cools? 
And nature puts the, the carbon in the ocean um, in the form of biocarbon. So you have plankton that grows, which is algae, and it feeds some fish. But in the end, the, the dead plants and the dead animals sink. And what's wonderful for, about this in the ocean is that it doesn't rot. Because on land, when a tree dies, it rots or it burns. In the ocean, when things die, they sink, and there's not oxygen in the deep ocean or to decay. And so it takes the carbon with it. So then the question is, okay, good, so you can, there's lots of sun in the ocean, lots of water, and there's nutrients in the water. So what, is it, what does it take to actually get this to happen faster so that we can do CO2? And it was discovered 30 years ago that the, the critical nutrient in most of the ocean is, uh, seems to be iron, and phenomenally small amounts of iron. It, it, it's about one four thousandth as much iron as you put a fertilizer on a, on a cornfield. So it, it's, it's a, about a kilogram per square kilometer, which is, if, you, if you've ever cleaned up dust off of your backyard, you realize that's way less than the dust that falls on your backyard. Um, or your back patio. So, so that's the first one. It was tested uh, at scale 10 years ago in the Gulf of Alaska. And what's very nice about it is, and, and it worked, so they do it in an eddy, which is about 100 miles in diameter, and, and that keeps the, the nutrient, which is the iron dust, iron, iron ore dust, contained so that you get a healthy ecosystem in, in the eddy and you keep the less healthy ecosystem that we're used to outside of it, but it keeps things stable. And then the, the fish come to, to the, eat the food, the algae. And on the, on the one hand, you sequester, uh, when they did it, they estimated about 82 million tons of CO2, and they use about 70 tons of iron dust, iron ore dust, so it's iron rock dust. And the exciting part is at the end, the next year, the, that, the algae that grew became food for uh, fish, especially salmon. And the salmon harvest was uh, four and a half times what it had been pre- the previous year. And, and, well, four and a half what they expected. I, I think it was like eight times the previous year. I think they expected a small increase. And it was the biggest salmon harvest they ever had. You can look that up in the records of Alaska as well as the records of Canada. And it produced about $500 million of additional revenue related to that, to that salmon harvest. And it only cost about $2.5 million to implement. So you have a phenomenally cost-effective way to do it, which the government did not have to fund. And so that's the number one pathway. In order to get all the CO2 removed by 2050, which is our target, all the excess CO2, that way is um, about 500 of those eddies. And that if you multiply it out, it comes out to about 1% of the area of the ocean. And that means that uh, part of the ocean will be revitalized um, with a lot of growing, restoring fisheries. And then, but most of the ocean will you know, do its gradual you know, improvement and, and uh, worsening just as it naturally does. But the point is, uh, some people think that the iron fertilization involves the whole ocean. And indeed, that's that's crazy talk. If you do the math, realistically, it's just 1% of the ocean. And uh, that's a little bit like uh, farming 1% of the land. 
in reality on land we farm about 40% of it. So it's relatively very safe. Well, in October 2021, Stanford scientist and the chair of the Global Carbon Project, Rob Jackson, told Radio Ecoshock listeners about the promise of methane removal. And methane is a short-lived gas in the atmosphere, even though it is powerful for warming. Is it still worth investing in technology to reduce it? You know, the, the politics in that is, is very complicated. So technically speaking, just as, as a pure physicist, the answer is no. That is, of course, it's good to get rid of methane leaks, you know, leaky pipes and so on. In terms of improving the climate, the sources of methane are so dispersed around the climate, around the planet. So uh, most of the methane comes out of, of uh, wetlands. So, and then a lot of it comes out of rice fields. Like you have, when you have a rice field, you have all this rotting material under the water. And then, of course, you have a lot coming from coal mines, which are huge, and you can't put a piece of plastic over the big coal mine. And so really reducing methane emissions is uh, difficult, if not impossible. And even if you did, it doesn't solve the big problem. And the big problem with methane is uh, a methane, the risk of a methane burst. And it turns out that just like with, with CO2 removal, we use nature's methods. And for methane, nature naturally oxidizes methane in the atmosphere. So it lasts, on average, about eight years in the, in the air. And then just natural processes oxidize it into water and CO2. So we, we said, well, can we accelerate that? Can we double the rate of oxidation and get the half-life, as we call it, down to four years? And it looks like the answer is yes, and it looks like it's not very expensive. There's this technique called uh, iron, iron salt aerosol. It uses iron chloride, which is a natural chemical. Um, it's just iron and chlorine, like in salt. So it, it, it's not particularly harmful. I mean, if you swallow it, it it's an irritant. I, I've gotten some on, on, my, on my fingers, and it's like, oh, I can feel that. But the, the, the iron itself... We, we all need iron and we all need you know, salt, like chlorine as in salt. So the iron chloride will, will oxidize, is activated by sunlight and will oxidize the methane. And so we're currently working to develop the technique where we disperse the iron chloride uh, vapor in ship exhaust in order to disperse it widely over the ocean. And all the evidence is that uh, over the next five or ten years, uh, we can develop that to the point where we reduce methane levels back to what they were pre-industrial, which is great because it'll uh, it'll reduce global warming if you know, assuming that we do that. And no one's seen any reason that I, I've been asking a lot of people, how could we fail? And we haven't come up with any good reasons other than we just got tired and decided to go to the movies instead. And we're not going to do that. As I said, it looks like it's safe. There's no indication. We've had initial uh, environmental uh, evaluations done which say it's safe. Assuming that we do it, then we can get global warming back to what it was in the year 2000 and do that uh, well before the year 2030, uh, which is phenomenal. And again, it, it starts with said, doing it as an engineer, saying, here's our goal. And, here, and then figuring out how do we achieve that goal, as opposed to uh, you, we'll be using the science, but not guided by the science. Science will guide you to having more of the same, 
which we don't want anymore. We want to go back. And so the engineering takes to where we want. Radio Equishaw guest Dr. David Keith at Harvard leads a project for direct air carbon uh, capture. Uh, right from the air, his team has a former industrial plant in British Columbia working on it. But Peter, why are you doubtful about direct air capture? Uh, direct air capture is very interesting. I've worked with David uh, Keith on some of his projects there. The problem with it is for a project to be successful and make a difference in the climate, it needs to be scalable. And direct air capture is scalable. It needs to be permanent. And direct air capture can be permanent. If you find the right place to pump it underground, you can make it permanent. But the third one they fail at, and it has to be viable, which means say, you have to have someone fund it. And direct air capture would require about $5 trillion a year of funding. And there's just not a, a funding source for that. Whereas if instead uh, you do the iron fertilization, um, that would cost about a half a billion, uh, less than a thousandth as much as the direct air capture. Um, And it has its own funding source, which is the the fisheries. So that's the the issue with the direct air capture is it's not not viable. And it's also very expensive compared to using nature's method. I was going to say, this all sounds like geoengineering, more technology to solve problems of technology, but you think it's more than that? I call it terraforming. So what we're doing is we're terraforming the Earth to look like Earth again. There could be someone who opposes that, but most of us who have kids and grandkids really do want our planet to look like a planet that will, will allow humans to flourish. So it, the terminology is important. The UN IPCC recommends against using the term geoengineering because it is a very emotional term now. And so they recommend instead only discussing the specifics of carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management. In the book, you say we need to remove seven tons of CO2 per year for every man, woman, and child, the equivalent of 14 pounds a day. Can we do that? Yeah. We, we certainly can. That, that's the great thing, is, uh, especially with the ocean fertilization. So the second thing I haven't discussed at length here, but uh, synthetic limestone, we can definitely remove it at that rate. We could remove it faster if we wanted to. Over the next five or ten years, we may discover that we, that we want to move it to restore it faster than that. It's interesting. Once you set the goal and put smart people on it, they say, oh, using nature's methods, the nice thing about using nature's methods, like the iron fertilization, nature does that using iron dust from volcanoes and from dust storms. And so it's well tested by nature and we don't worry about it much. So we we could scale it faster if we wanted to. Uh, If we do it by 2050, the rate of cooling of the planet will be about the same rate that the planet warmed up. And we figure that's a good starting point and we can, once we get started on that, we can optimize it to reduce the uh, ecosystem losses. So, our listeners become convinced we could restore the climate, and uh, many call for pressure on Congress or, or the national governments, but those governments are double-dealing right now. They're giving out more oil and gas infrastructure money, and uh, the Democratic Climate Action Bill is dying in Congress as we speak. Nobody's even talking about it. So what do we do? Do we need more local action, uh, community solar projects? Uh, What do you think? I like that. Yes, more community action, more uh, community solar projects. And the reason is to tell people that we're optimistic, 
that we actually have a meaningful goal. The climate system evolved in an unfortunate fashion. And so our climate goals now made sense in 1970, which is now 52 years ago. In 1970, at the time, around the time of the first oil crisis, all we needed to do was stop burning fossil fuels. And we would have stayed well below 350 parts per million, and we would not be having this conversation. No matter what your political opinions are, we didn't do that. And so we're now in a place where reducing emissions is archaic. It's the wrong goal. Our goal now needs to be to restore the climate for future generations. That has to start on the, with communities. We developed an idea today of mothers for future generations. You know, if some listener wants to help us start that, that would be great. Because corporations don't, they don't have a constituency of future generations. They're not buyers. And the government, the constituency of the government is voters and taxpayers and donors. And, you know, our you know, grandchildren who are either young or have not yet been born, they're, they're not constituents. So they can't influence the, uh, and they can't stand for any investment from the government for them. However, our communities can do that. Climate restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. That is the big job tackled in Peter Fiakowski's new book just out. And you can find out more at peterfiakowski.com and the Foundation for Climate Restoration at f4cr.org, f4cr.org. You will find those links and more in my own show blog published at ecoshock.org. Peter, thank you for your time and for this vision. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for Ecoshock. It's great to have a, a platform to transmit these ideas. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. As you heard in my interview with Peter Fiakowski, governments currently fail to control emissions, much less restoring the climate. Peter suggests private donors and corporations are ready to find climate restoration solutions. We used to think that only governments could do something like this. But maybe the private sector can? Consider the U.S. space program. Of course, only NASA and governments can do that. But when that failed in the United States, private operators from Musk to Bezos have stepped in to supply the rockets and know-how. If that is possible, why not climate restoration, which seems to be much, much cheaper? Fiakowski says climate is no longer a science problem. He says, quote, A scientist predicts what will happen. Engineers cause what they want to happen. End quote. For him, climate is not a science problem now. It is an engineering one and a social problem. Peter proposes, This is the way the brain works. What you pay attention to is what you get. If skidding in a car, do not look at the tree you hope not to hit. Look at the road in the direction you want to go and steer there. Now it doesn't pay to look at climate disaster, as real as that may appear, but on the kind of climate we need and want. This will be a revolutionary thought for some. So we now go for a dive into fertilizing ocean pastures, as they say. Is that a climate tool? 
When I asked Peter to tell us about the big four solutions advanced in his book, he brought ocean fertilization first. He said it was likely the major tool for climate restoration. But he then relied on the work of a questionable source, with no scientific publications, that we could judge it by. And the whole field is riddled with unknowns and untested theories. Peter told us about an experimental voyage in the Gulf of Alaska, which confirmed putting iron into the sea can stimulate plankton blooms, which then sequesters carbon permanently. At first, I thought he meant the expedition called the Subarctic Ecosystem Response to Iron Enrichment Study, or CERES. Three research ships from America, Mexico, and Japan spent almost a month adding iron and monitoring results. There were 45 researchers from 20 institutions on board with loads of equipment. I looked up a large review of all research into carbon capture through iron ocean fertilization. For example, here is one. Reviews and Syntheses. Ocean Iron Fertilization Experiments, Past, Present, and Future. What did they find? Quote, Increased particulate silica export via sinking diatoms was recorded in sediment traps at depths between 50 and 125 meters, but when they set traps at various levels in the sea below, the results were not encouraging for ocean mineralization success. They found, quote, only a small portion of the mixed layer of the organic carbon was intercepted by the traps, with more than half of the mixed layer of organic carbon deficit attributable to bacterial remineralization and mesozooplankton grazing. So other ocean processes, including consumption by larger life forms, grabbed most of the organic carbon before it hit the bottom. Only a small portion proceeded towards the sea bottom. Do proponents of ocean pasture restoration include the small results in their promised carbon removal? Finally, this research voyage called Ceres found, quote, inefficient transfer of iron-increased particulate organic carbon below the permanent thermocline, which means iron-increased carbon did not move much below the layer of cooling in the sea. Not a lot of carbon made it to the bottom, this large team of scientists found. They say these findings, quote, have major implications for both the biogeochemical interpretation of times of greater iron supply in the geological past and also for proposed geoengineering schemes to increase oceanic carbon sequestration, end quote. That sounds pretty discouraging for iron enrichment to capture carbon in the sea, but in the interview, Peter Fiakowski referred to a recent research expedition about 10 years ago, that is, around 2012. The only such voyage was the controversial experiment by Russ George, is that good proof of ocean carbon capture as the best tool to restore the atmosphere? Let us investigate again. Russ George claimed to be the senior scientist for that ocean trip, financed by money from the Haida tribe in British Columbia. Russ has no training in oceanography, as far as I can tell, no university degree of any kind. I covered that controversial story extensively in two radio programs in 2012, I interviewed Russ George for the first hour, and then three critics in the second program. During an investigation into the iron dumping incident by George, the Canadian government, the authorities, raided Russ George's offices and seized his computers and data. I've been unable to find any scientific publication 
or public release of extensive data Russ claimed to collect during that trip. Now, there was an increase in salmon harvest the following year, as we will hear, but we cannot be truly sure why. It is possible iron fertilization worked, but as we see from the earlier series experiment, to find out, ships have to be on the water for an extended period of time, taking difficult measurements of dropping organic materials at depth. This was not done by George, and so we do not know. That cannot be the basis for depending on ocean fertilization as a viable climate solution. In the Fiakowski book, we find a small biography of Russ George, his experiments, and the media controversy. Peter and co-author Carol Douglas begin, quote, One of those who caught the iron bug early was Russ George. I first met Russ George in 2017. Around the time I was realizing that almost no one was focusing on the need to restore the climate. When I queried eminent climate scientists, they expressed interest in climate restoration, but were vague about how methods might be financed or scaled to remove 50 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere per year. One idea came through loud and clear, though. Don't talk to Russ George. After hearing this warning three times, I got Russ's contact information. Soon we met in a New York restaurant where he ended up bending my ear for hours. End quote from Peter Fiakowski. Apparently, Russ convinced Peter. Fiakowski calls him a self-styled environmental scientist. Others would claim Russ George misled people into thinking he was a scientist. In the 1990s and the early 2000s, some people thought George had expertise in physics. Russ established a business promoting cold fusion and sold stock in the company. Fiakowski also thinks cold fusion will work and promises an announcement about that in a year or two. Is this convergence of enthusiasms on the very edge of scientific credibility a coincidence? I did not know Russ George had previously been approached, and we presume funded, by oil companies. The new Fiakowski book says, quote, Thanks to his reforestation expertise, George was asked to design a carbon sequestration plant for some major oil companies. He realized that it was not physically possible to plant enough trees in Canada to absorb the amount of carbon dioxide the oil company activities emitted. But with a little iron, he thought, it might be possible to achieve the same goal in the ocean. End quote. Fiakowski acknowledges the Haida people thought Russ George was a scientific advisor. But Russ George did not have any credits or credibility as a scientific advisor. This brings up the question, will great answers to climate come from outside the scientific community? Quite possible. As an engineer, Peter Fiakowski in the interview says climate is no longer a question for science which he says only records and projects more climate threats. It's a time for technologists like engineers. He says engineers cause changes they want rather than recording mere nature. In fairness, we need to point out the earliest discoveries, important ones, about the atmosphere and chemistry came before the days of institutional science. Some important work came from gentlemen investigators in the 17 and 1800s. Before 1970 and really the 1990s, there were no climate scientists. Most senior climate scientists today began as physicists, oceanographers, meteorologists, and such. It seems entirely possible that important answers to large human problems of fossil dependency may come from people and the private sector rather than the scientific process. 
Elon Musk's electrification of transportation is an example of solutions by engineers. There has been a long-standing competition for leadership between scientists and engineers, sometimes acrimonious. But when it comes to public policy and making changes to the global commons like ocean life, we do need some kind of protective system that double-checks claims and results. That is certainly required before we can depend on ocean fertilization as a climate solution. That is one area where science can provide. The scientific method, with the requirement of duplication of experimental results, is a protection we need. We don't have that on the work of Russ George, who had other questionable company dealings. That company, Planktos, had penny stock pumping by obscure owners in Panama and the under-regulated stock market in British Columbia. All this was investigated and published by then-Vancouver Sun business reporter David Baines, a guest on Radio EcoShock. You can find links to my two programs about Russ George and his history in my show blog, published Wednesdays at EcoShock.org. Peter Fiakowski handles this controversy fairly in his new book, citing many sides of the debate and concluding, quote, the online magazine Salon summarized the confusion many in the public felt in a headline that asked, Does Russ George deserve a Nobel Prize or a prison sentence? End quote. The problem is, folks, we still don't know. But Fiakowski is certain Russ George's iron dumping did pay off in more fish the following year. He notes, quote, One important thing. The Haida salmon came back in 2013, the year after the iron dispersal in the Gulf of Alaska. Fisheries in Oceans Canada documented the largest run of pink salmon ever recorded, over 12 million. End quote. Benefits to fisheries may help pay the low costs of a series of ocean fertilization experiments. That assumes a government or somebody could collect a fee from fishers who benefit to cover the costs. It might be difficult to assess who caught what fish. Salmon travel large distances. This could cover the financeable criteria for climate restoration tools that Fiakowski sets out. But it does not comfortably prove the effectiveness of this technique for large-scale carbon dioxide removal. That's a separate question. We should note that actual scientific experiments to determine the results of ocean fertilization run with government funding and carrying trained scientists over a 20-year period were unable to find proof this will work. Well, what does that great compendium of science collected by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say about ocean fertilization with iron? Chapter 4 of the 2021 AR6 Working Group 1 says of carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, when CDR is applied continuously and at scales as large as currently deemed possible, under RCP 8.5, as the background scenario, the widely discussed carbon dioxide removal options such as afforestation, iron fertilization, and surface ocean alkalization are individually expected to be relatively ineffective, with limited 8% warming reductions relative to the scenario with no carbon dioxide removal option. This is based on Keller et al. 2014. Hence, the potential role that carbon dioxide removal will play in lowering the temperature in high-emission scenarios is limited, medium confidence, end quote, from the IPCC. 
We can also look to the supplementary material for the Working Group 1 AR6 report that came out last fall. It lists a number of carbon reductions in a chart. They list ocean iron fertilization with a large potential but low confidence, medium evidence, low agreement. So the best summaries of science have not much confidence in ocean iron fertilization as a large-scale solution and low agreement on whether it will work. Just saying. In an interview, Fiakowski says, quote, When they did it, who is they, Ross, George? When they did it, they estimated that about 82 million tons of CO2, and they used about 70 tons of iron dust. How would we verify that 82 million tons of CO2 were sequestered from the Russ George expedition when the records of the voyage were allegedly seized and then lost by the Canadian authorities? The expedition ship did not stay on the grounds long enough to measure the results, as we see as needed in the earlier studies, and could not measure how much, if any, carbon made it to the bottom of the sea. Who says 82 million tons of CO2 were sequestered by that voyage. Keep in mind that Russ George appeared on YouTube with the Pope after claiming to make the Vatican the first carbon-neutral state. That was based on carbon sequestration that was promised in a Hungarian forest that was never planted, i.e. did not exist. That's one of his many exploits. I have previously covered a list of Russ George claims. Russ George is not the authoritative source for proof of concept we need to save us from our greenhouse gas emissions. Fiakowski tells us the George Fertilization Experiment generated about half a billion dollars in extra fisheries revenue, which the government did not have to fund. I quote him there. In fact, the venture was funded by the government of the Haida people, and those monies came from the Canadian federal government. This was not private venture capital. Peter calls ocean iron fertilization the number one climate restoration technique, We would have to fertilize about 500 of those eddies, he says, which is about 1% of the area of the ocean. Peter has appeared with Russ George on ocean pasture restoration as an event in COP25, November 2019. There's a video of that conference, which I'll post to my blog. The official organizer of that presentation was the International Society for Ecological Economics. Does plankton need restoration? Another question about this push for ocean pasture restoration. The group states ocean plankton is decreasing due to climate change and pollution. Certainly new dead zones are appearing around the world here and there due to land-based pollution, mainly fertilizer runoff, we think. But whether climate change will increase or decrease plankton growth is not known, according to the plankton expert I interviewed, Sergei Petrovsky. Petrovsky was a senior scientist at the Russian Shirshov Interview of Oceanography for 15 years before moving to Britain. His work in Russia involved modeling plankton growth for the big Russian fishing fleet, so he is more than qualified. As I wrote in my 2016 blog, if Petrovsky is right, we may advance into the future fooled by response of plankton. As the world warms, Plankton could appear to thrive, providing lots of oxygen and sequestering more carbon dioxide. We all cheer. Apologists tell us our worries were overblown. But then, according to Petrovsky, a limit beyond sustainable cycles is reached, 
and plankton worldwide would experience a mass die-off. That is another trap. It looks good until, as Petrovsky and his colleagues call it, catastrophe two occurs. There are so many known unknowns about ocean restoration because ocean pasture restoration is not nearly so simple as it sounds. Plankton, that word, it's not a type of species. We can't show you a photograph of a plankton. Coming from the Greek, the word plankton simply means tiny life in the sea, all kinds of it. Some look like specks, others cannot be seen by the human eye. There are two major types of plankton, plant organisms, which perform essential photosynthesis, the basis of life, we call them phytoplankton, and tiny animals which feed on phytoplankton, called zooplankton. Some zooplankton are actually baby forms of sea creatures we will see and recognize when they grow up. When iron is added to the sea, the phytoplankton can increase rapidly. If conditions are right, they will bloom in a large wave of new production. A subset of plankton builds shells around their bodies, tiny shells that you cannot see. These shells are made of calcium carbonate, and the carbon is taken from the sea fairly close to the surface because the process requires light. If and when the bodies of those calcified organisms fall down into the ocean column, if they drift all the way down to the deep sea bottom, the carbon in them will remain there. It could eventually become calcified rock, That's what we see that's been uplifted in the white cliffs of Dover. That is the goal of ocean restoration, to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by taking it out of the sea. More carbon dioxide will come out of the atmosphere into the sea, and that will go into these life forms which drift to the bottom when they die, and that's the end of the carbon dioxide. That's the dream. But the plankton bloom changes a lot about ocean biology and chemistry. For example, the carbonate-covered phytoplankton stimulate a large growth in zooplankton predators that consume them. Those, in turn, may be eaten by fish, like salmon. What happens to the carbon in this case? What happens to it when you remove the fish from the ocean? How much carbon is released back into the sea, and then the atmosphere, in the grand carbon cycle? Despite years of study, the reality is we still do not know. In a survey of scientific papers, including overviews of ocean fertilization experiments, I was unable to find a single study showing conclusive measurements of the amount of carbon dioxide sequestered by adding iron to the sea. On top of all that uncertainty, we have a second major impact of our carbonization of the atmosphere, ocean acidification. This process, which is measurably making the ocean more acidic, reduces the ability of shell-forming plankton to make calcium carbonate. The reasons are simple chemistry. Will ocean acidification reduce the ability of plankton to capture carbon? Some scientists think so, but we don't know. Find out more on the blog. Ecoshock.org. Free for all. Ecoshock.org. There is an essential rightness to Fiakowski's book. We cannot argue with the basic concept that carbon levels in the atmosphere will have to be reduced somehow. If we hope to maintain the polar ice fields, if we hope to maintain the climate where we and other species evolved, pretty well everyone agrees with that, including the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and world governments. They endorse carbon capture and storage as their main tool. If we can use nature's methods 
to remove carbon dioxide and methane from the atmosphere, that is the optimum and safest solution. Peter Fiakowski is absolutely right about that and wise to promote that in his work and his new book. But we are not fooling around here. We only have a few years left to act before climate change becomes locked in and climate-driven extremes overwhelm us. Plus, there's limited finance and very limited public attention and will to do anything about climate change. We need to choose and promote our tools wisely. So far, in my opinion, ocean restoration does not fit that bill. It's the collective judgment of world scientists as well. The IPCC has low agreement and low expectations for ocean fertilization as a way to repair the atmosphere. The process seems relatively harmless, though, even though we don't know the full ecological consequences of making such changes to the ocean repeatedly over a long term. There could be unknown consequences, including a breakdown of those same natural systems. There could be an overload from the bloom. We don't know. We could argue humans should add iron to the ocean to encourage a better fishery in some places. In a capitalist sense, it would pay to do that. And growing humanity does need the food, especially the protein. But that is a very different argument than adding ocean iron to reduce carbon in the atmosphere permanently on a large scale. We have no proof that will work. Now, when it comes to methane, that's another subject. Methane is a very dangerous global warming gas, as you know, much stronger than carbon dioxide. Fiakowski says it is difficult, if not impossible, to influence methane from sources like tropical bogs and flooded rice fields. Sure, we should patch up those leaking pipelines, he says. But he does worry about a methane burst from the Arctic. He fears that 50-gigaton burst suggested by Russian scientists Semilyatov and Shakova. Although possible, this methane burst theory also evaded scientific verification despite multiple expedition ships to the Siberian East Arctic Seas. One was funded by the Swedish Royal Academy. According to my Swedish source, the Russians kept and did not fully share the data from those expeditions. This, again, is science at the very edge. But Fiakowski stays on safer ground because he advises we work with natural methods for methane removal. Nature oxidizes methane in the atmosphere, breaking it down into other byproducts, including the less powerful warming gas carbon dioxide. But if we can speed the process up, more methane could be removed, as we heard on Radio EcoShock from Professor Rob Jackson and others. But I do have another disagreement with Peter from the interview. He says when I asked him uh, whether we should stop flying to help save the climate, Fiakowski thought not. He says, first of all, it won't work. There are not enough people who support cutting back on aviation, and he could be right. But people are absolutely able to stop elective flights and tourism and a lot of business conference flights when they think their lives are at risk. The drop in flying in 2020 was so extreme, major airlines parked planes, laid off thousands of pilots and flight attendants. They would have gone bankrupt without billions in taxpayer funding from various governments, just handouts there. The American government quickly handed the U.S. airlines $40 billion, and there may have been more. I presume there was. Other governments did the same. So the public definitely can and will stop flying if they see an imminent danger. Climate change is an imminent danger all over the world, possibly after enough suffering through storms, fires, floods, droughts, and species loss, people will be ready to stop flying again, this time to save the climate. 
Fiakowski also says in the great scheme of things, slashing air travel emissions would not really matter much. Now, I know what he means, because he's looking at the need to remove trillions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere to restore our previous climate system, if possible. Stopping air travel emissions is a drop in that bucket. He's right. But as emissions are still rising, growing air travel is a major contributor right now. Aviation produces about 2.1% of human-induced carbon dioxide emissions and rising. The impact may be even larger as that carbon and pollution is injected directly into the higher atmosphere, often above 30,000 feet, over 9,000 meters. Currently, human-induced greenhouse global emissions are growing year-on-year by about 3%. If we could knock out 2%, we could at least approach a plateau. Yes, it matters. Top-ranked climate scientist Kevin Anderson has sworn off flying, even to the international climate conferences. He is so concerned about aviation's impact on the atmosphere and our future. As the former deputy director of the UK's famous Tyndall Centre for Atmospheric Research, Professor Kevin Anderson took a commercial ship to a conference in Iceland and travels by train to Europe. The rest can be done online. Similarly, famous climate campaigner Greta Thunberg crossed the Atlantic for her appearance in New York on a fast racing sailboat. It was a brave voyage, with few conveniences, over 15 days from Plymouth, UK to New York. She thinks we should stop flying for fun, and so do millions of young people today. I think Peter Fiakowski is wrong to give aviation a free pass, like it's something we can get away with. But Fiakowski has some good news to offer on this front. He is involved in a company that's refining a technique first developed in World War II. They're trying to turn waste into jet fuel. Would I buy and read Peter Fiakowski's new book, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race? Yes, definitely. Peter brings new perspectives and a vision much better than lying down to wait for the extinction. Question everything. But this book wakes up a lot of questions, and that's always a good thing. Thank you for listening this week. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock.